a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Hello, legends. Welcome along to episode 138 of the Howie Games Part A, starring a superstar of Australian swimming, Stephanie Rice. Stephanie Rice, half a body length in front of world time. She's got seven metres to go. She's going to get another world record. She takes the IM, the 200, and the gold medal, and the world record again. Her second at the meet. At the 2008 Beijing Olympics, Stephanie competed in three events for three gold medals and three world records, joining a select group of Australians to win three golds at the One Games. Seriously big names, Ian Thorpe, Shane Gould and Murray Rose. Steph, well, she did all this at the age of just 20. This is a story about what it takes to dominate in Olympic Games, then how to adjust to the fact that your athletic career is finished at an age where most people are only just making their way in life. What comes next? So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key As you're about to hear, Steph is a vibrant, fun, happy, very open person who has packed a lot into her life so far. Enjoy the story of Stephanie Louise Rice, OAM. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games. A look at the smiling face coming to me from Queensland. Uh, Triple Olympic gold medalist has done so much in her life and learned a lot of lessons along the way and it is a true treat to see her. While I'm down here in lockdown, she's living the dream, which is fantastic. Stephanie Rice joins us on the Howie Games. Steph, wonderful to see you. How are you going? Thanks, Howie. I'm good. It's a beautiful day in Queensland. We're not in lockdown, so <laughs> I really have nothing to complain about. It's, it's funny, isn't it? People that are not in lockdown, you know, these days in the modern world, are like, oh, I'm so sorry you are and it's a privilege not to be accepted. But it's not. It's not a privilege to live your normal life. And others are like, oh, wow, you know, it sucks that you guys aren't in lockdown. Well, it doesn't. It's cool that you're living your life and we will be soon, I reckon. Yeah, I know. It's just such a crazy time with all of that as well, especially with social media, right? Because it's like you can just post yourself going for a walk and people are like, have some more respect for people in lockdown. And you're like, oh, my God, it's like a lose-lose. But, no, honestly, it is like I've always loved living in Queensland. I've been here my whole life, swam here. So I I like that Queensland is a little bit of a slower pace and a little bit more family orientated for me because my family lives here. So it's kind of, but it's always, I've always had to travel to Sydney or Melbourne for work. So it's kind of nice now to be in Queensland (laughs) to just be able to enjoy (laughs) life really because, you know, work has been all online. So it's been nice. How, how have you dealt with the what's been, you know, it affects different people in different ways, this whole situation, I reckon? It's funny, like, um, I think, you well, you get used to your own normal, right? And so for me in mm. 2019, well, actually, like, not just 2019, but basically from the age of 14 to 2019, so that 15 years, really, I travelled multiple 
times a year for either swimming competitions or work-related stuff. Um, mm. So I was on a plane in 2019 away for maybe six months of the year and I was used to that, like, go, go, go lifestyle of almost like working when I was away for a project and then I would come back to Queensland to rest and then go again. And I loved that and I loved the intensity and the freedom and adventure. And so when mm. I couldn't travel, like with with the start of COVID, that really threw me because it, it obviously it was a work-related aspect to traveling that I missed, but also just missed the freedom and that expansiveness and that adventure. Yes. And I felt trapped, even though we were like not really struggling with lockdowns or anything. It just, I, I missed that part of myself that kind of makes me feel alive. Um, and, and then obviously a lot of work toppled over off the back mm. of that because I was working in India a lot and, um, what are we doing in India? So I had been doing a lot of commentary work with um, different sports and Olympics. And the goal had always been to develop a high performance swimming academy. Um, cool. So I had been building this project for maybe three years. It was in partnership with the Indian and Australian government because we were obviously working on Olympic level to really help their Olympic level of swimming because they don't really have one. Mm. But it was also going to filter down into learn to swim and really address some of the issues around swim safety and drownings in India. So it felt like this really philanthropic um, business venture that it was so exciting and hitting so many touch points that I loved. And I had been working on that for about three years. And they were building a full f facility in consultation with you know, what I wanted and needed. And then COVID hit and the whole thing just got canned. Like yeah. one email and it was like gone. Um, and, you know, obviously I was disappointed, but it was more like a purpose project, like where you're like, this this is t hitting and fulfilling me so much, not just financially, but that was a big part of it as well. Mm. So then when all that stopped and then all the travel stopped and a lot of the brand ambassador work got cut because people didn't know how big their marketing budgets were going to be and things like that, uh, I was just like, I'm bored. Like I am... I am totally privileged and I am comfortable and I've, I've you know, had a, a success for a long time, so I'm okay. But I just found the mental boredom really hard, really, really hard. I just, I was like, this makes no sense. Also, I, I'm single. So I think a lot of people that kind of felt that way, that had a relationship, like so many of my friends, they're like, oh, have a baby <laughs> or like get married or like, I don't know, just invest in your relationship in some form. And so I was like, I don't like literally every weekend is like, <laughs> what am I doing? Like, I don't know, nothing. It's funny. There's a couple of things you said there. I, I obviously with work, I'm so used to traveling and I miss being able to go away and see places. I, I miss, I miss the Qantas club toasted no, sandwich I machine. I, I really miss the toasted so sandwich I. machine, but I, I, I don't miss lining up and going through the airport. It's funny that you say about relationships. We'll, we'll get to where we need to get to in a moment, but I was sitting with my wife the other day and, you know, as a married couple, you discuss how you're going at times and we're going well, but then she did say to me, gee, it's different having you home all the time <laughs> because you're normally away with work. So we're both very independent people. So we get our separation time at the moment. There is so much separation <laughs> time, which which is interesting as well in a whole nother way. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really nice to speak to you because... In the past, my interviews with you have been for two and a half minutes while you're going <laughs> <laughs> I know. after you've got out of out of the pool, which seems a lifetime ago. The, the first thing I wanted to ask you, 
we've been fortunate enough to have so many swimmers on the show and some love swimming still. Others can think of nothing worse, whether it's whether it's Hacky or Thorpey or, or Liesl or Kate Campbell. Do you still go and swim for fun and enjoyment or does that thought just make you curl, your toes curl up? It's so funny. I have like a love-hate relationship personally with swimming, like f- f- to go swimming personally. Like <laughs> I... Um, I don't want to go. Like if if I'm at home and I'm I'm sort of thinking about exercise, the thought of going swimming is not one that ever arises. And it's for a few reasons, which will sound super superficial, but like I have to drive to the pool. Um, then you know, for me to feel like I've actually done a solid workout in the pool based on my current fitness mm. level, I have to go for like an hour. Um, and I enjoy the actual swimming process and the meditative aspects that I get from like not being able to hear anybody and that it's a real flow state. So I do really get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And it is really nice to feel good at something because I don't get that (laughs) feeling day to day with something else. So I kind of still get that feeling at the local pool where I'm like, yeah, I've still got it. Like I can beat the old mate next to me in the (laughs) fast lane, Um, you know, and I'm like, cool, that feels really good. But does old mate in the fast lane, look in the slow lane, turn around and think, oh, my gosh, this is a three-time Olympic gold medalist. He's probably having the opposite effect. Like my ego is getting floated and his is getting crushed. Um, <laughs> <It's> real flat. <laughs> but, um, no, I don't know. I, I think like but then also for me it's like, you know, my hair's wet and then I'm going to shower and come back. Like that's a two-hour commitment mm. to go swimming where I could literally just work out at home for 30 minutes and get the same benefit. So I don't really like going for those reasons because it just takes up so much of my time. Um, um, however, I did get into it a little bit last year because I was bored and it was nice to go with a friend that also swam and kind of, you know, it is, I still enjoy it when I'm there. I just don't really go very often at all. So how, how are you? Obviously, you're keeping really fit. What you've, this is a sports podcast. I'm always fascinated with retired athletes. Some just leave it alone and blow out and never do another thing in their life, but that's obviously not you. How, how are you keeping fit at the moment? <laughs> I think I did uh, right off the back of finishing swimming in 2013. I yeah. for sure, like, was so exhausted and I had adrenal fatigue. I was recovering from my third shoulder surgery. I did not want to exercise at all. But then I also equally didn't want to get fat. So it was like <laughs> these these two things like don't go together. Um, and inevitably I got fat for sure. Like I think I put on 10 kilos, which is just like awful. When I look back at that time and those photos, I'm just like, who is that person? Um, but I also look at the photos and don't know who I am because I was also so lost and I didn't know what I was doing. And I just felt like the, I always think it's kind of like you're, I was always trying to find like equilibrium, you know, like the pendulum had swung from this really high intense training to the other way where I just wanted to be lazy and do nothing. And then, you know, it probably took me two years to kind of find, okay, what is my new normal and what, Mm. what, what is balance? And not so much from a physical standpoint, but a mental standpoint, you know, my expectation of what I needed to do in order to feel like I had done a workout for the day was seven hours as an elite athlete. (laughs) So that's a long session in the gym, seven hours. But this was part of the mental problem was that like I would go, go to the gym in that, you know, first year or two or three after I finished swimming and I would be there for two hours and think, well, I have to at least stay for three hours to feel like I have done 
a workout and not feel mm. like it was a fail, a failure for me because felt like three, three hours was a failure compared to seven. So Jeez. it took me such a long time to rewire my brain to be okay with like a 30 minute workout, which is what I do now. Like I kind of do 30 minutes um, of sort of high intensity stuff. However, like I try to be as intuitive to my body as possible in the sense that like, um, I always find some kind of balance between like three high intensity workouts a week, a really long hike, you know, 10 K or something and a couple of Pilates sessions. But when they fall is really based on how my body feels that day. Like if I'm tired or stressed, like I'll do something lighter. If I've got more energy, yeah, I do like body weight, high intensity kind of stuff. And 30 minutes is really the max that I'll do. And I love that. And I usually do that six times a week. And on the seventh time, the day that you have off and do nothing, can you relax your brain and say, yep, I've done enough training this week? Or is it nibbling away at you thinking, oh, gee whiz? No, I can now because I know that the rest is just as important as the workout. But um, And I enjoy actually allocating a rest day. The, the worst for me is when, like, I think I'm going to do a workout you know, cause I don't, I don't always have a rest day on the same day. Like it, it, I kind of try to be fluid. So I might think like today I worked out this morning cause I know I have a really big day, but if I didn't, and I had all this stuff going on in my head, I'm still thinking, oh, I'll work out later. I'll work out later. I'll work out later. And then it gets to sort of five o'clock and I'm like, you know what? Like, mm. and then it doesn't feel like a rest day. Cause like mentally yeah. I still. Cause you've been thinking about it. So yeah. and do you eat, do you, do you eat well? Is, are you diet conscious or no? Yeah. Well, I've been vegan for about seven years. So I'm, huh. um, I always say that I'm 98% vegan because, um, the <laughs> vegan community can be really polarizing. You're either oh. like super extremist and I love like supporting plant-based um, options and lifestyles. And I, I truly am like, I, I would never touch any meat again, but there's things like little bits of dairy or egg or whatever in birthday cakes and muffins that I'm not going to be that person. I don't want yeah. it to ruin my lifestyle in a sense that like if I'm at a family gathering for somebody's birthday. I'm not going to say like, oh, I can't have like that because it's got an egg in it. Like, I just don't want it to be that way. <laughs> it's funny what you say. Like, it's a, I don't know why. It's a very, if people say I'm vegan, some people roll their eyes. Others are like, well, do you do it prop? It's a, it's a divisive yeah. issue, but it, like, it's, it's a choice to, you know, you're making a choice obviously that makes you feel good. And, and it's also yeah. like, where, where do you draw the line? You know, because I could be fully plant-based when it comes to diet, but then like, do you remove every animal? Like, like I've got leather belts and handbags from music. Mm. Like then what do I do? Throw them out? Like, I just think it's for me, what I, I didn't, I went vegan because of um, health related issues at the start. Like I said before, I had adrenal fatigue and I was really struggling with like putting on weight and, struggling with mental stuff around diet and body image and all of that. Cause also I'm in the media. So I feel like it was like extra pressure, um, to look a certain way. And for me personally, I felt all of that. And so I was always looking for a way to eat healthy food and eat a, a decent quantity of food, but still like look good and feel good. And that's when, um, veganism was, I, I kept seeing it come up and I was really researching it and, and I was very interested by, 
eating that kind of way. And the more I did it, the better I felt. Like In what way? How, how do you feel better? So the, I cut out dairy first. For me, I always felt like I had digestive problems or felt bloated or skin would break out or whatever. And then the minute I sort of really cut out all the dairy, I really felt better in myself. Like I didn't wake up still feeling bloated. I didn't get like I used to just get even like indigestion and like, you know, like, I don't know, just like uncomfortable feeling in my body. Um, I didn't get that anymore. And I was like, well, this is amazing. And so that propelled me to like, why don't I try cut out like red meat? I've never really liked that. Um, so cut that out and kept eating chicken and eggs for a while. And then I thought, okay, why don't I try to just really go fully plant-based and, I think the thing I liked the most is that, so I don't get sick. Like that's the biggest thing that I think I uh, have loved is that I used to continually get like, well, as an athlete, I was like always on the edge of like getting some kind of sickness. You're just teetering on this, like being broken all the time. Um, And so I was always forever getting run down with like head colds or um, some kind of flu, you're constantly ba- battling all this inflammation from the training and the in- intensity. So I felt like m- now that I had healed my body in this way from all of this injury that I'd gone through, I just felt better in myself. I had more energy mentally, I had more clarity, and that's what kept me going. It wasn't like I had watched some documentary on animal cruelty and that was the reason that I went vegan. So it's a great explanation. There's obviously um, we've had a couple of uh, vegan athletes who are still competing that have been on this show. You know, he's Sir Lewis Hamilton now, the Formula One seven-time world champion. He's vegan as he's competing. Peter Siddle said it completely changed his body shape. How do you reckon you would have gone, like the calories, those famous shots of old mate Michael Phelps like loading in a pizzas and stuff. With with the energy output, how do you think you would have gone as a vegan competitive Olympic swimmer? No worries? Yeah, I actually would have loved to have tried it because I think that's when, you know, a lot of like you're using also people that are current as the um, role model for you can still be a high performer and be vegan. And I would have loved to have been able to do that, especially with the amount of stress that my body went through in the last year of my career with injuries and sickness. And I was just always trying to heal, I would have loved to have um, done that. I actually really think it would have benefited me more mm. than hindered me. Yeah, so we, we've wandered through all sorts of areas already. Sorry, but yeah. let, let's get, <laughs> No, 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 this is good. As I said to you at the start, this is it's very organic. It's just sort of whatever pops up. Um, and you obviously have no problem talking, which makes my job easy. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> no, no, you don't be sorry. It's good. I, I, it's so much easier when people have more to say rather than less to say. So tell me, how did you... Um, how did you? I don't want to go through race by race, but how did you first get into swimming? Uh, just as a kid, like learned to swim as most Aussies um, are, um, and just loved it. Like loved being in the water. Loved as a kid playing in the bathtub. You know, like just just being in the water. Really, I just felt like I could play. I had a lot of freedom. It felt free. Um, and as a kid in primary school, I didn't have many friends. I was really, really shy, really insecure. And um, people always like look at me now and go, like, as if, because I'm almost the opposite of that now. But yeah, like I was a very shy, insecure girl. I didn't really have any friends at school in my my year level. I So I made friends with like two years below me because they included me and stuff. 
And so the water was always a place that I felt like home. I felt safe. I felt like I could just, because also like the feeling I love in the water is that, you know, your head is under the water. You can't hear anything. You're kind of in your own little daydream world. And, um, so I felt like at a young age that made me feel like, just like it was my place. Like I didn't have to worry about all this other stuff and I loved it. And, and, and then I was, I think because I loved it, I was good at it because I, I wanted to go and I liked being there, always being competitive as well. So I liked racing and. What's the first race you won? What's the, well, what's the first race you can remember winning? I don't remember. Like I really actually don't remember. The only reason I remember is because there's a photo of me in probably like grade one at a, the school swimming carnival, like running back with my first place, like ribbon, like <laughs> to show mum, like, mum, like, look what I got. Yeah. The blue ribbon, the blue, not the red or the green, the blue. I mean, nowadays you what do you have like a multicolored one? Cause we don't hand out first, second and third. Well, like everybody wins now, Steph, everyone gets a blue ribbon, but that's uh, listen to the Emma Carney episode of this uh, show and you, you'll get, uh, right. Her, her views on that and potentially might let's not let's, let's not go there, as well. let's, but, um, let's no, go. and that's I, I remember that feeling and I think for me I very distinctly remember um like not having the peer friends in my school and not being included in anything and like at school when you know I remember they would pick us for like they would pick a team captain within your year level to pick the teammates for who wants to be on your team and I'll always get picked last. And then when I started getting good at swimming, I started getting picked like in the middle or towards the front because like mm. I was going to be a valuable member of the team, not because they liked me, just because Steph's good. So like we'll pick her. And that made me started to feel really like included in a part of it and like validate who I was and that I needed to also, you know, be good at something to be validated. And so I think that positive reinforcement that I was getting from my peers made me want to like do it more and, and get better at it. And then when I got a little bit older, like a teenager, I really felt like now I met people that were swimming that understood me and like we had similar goals and similar drive and passion. And I finally felt like I found my group of people. Um, yeah. And I think naturally, obviously when you love something, you put more effort into it. And yes. I just kind of kept getting better and better and better every year. And, and I loved it. And so, yeah, it just kind of kept going. We'll get to at some stage part of this conversation will be what happens when that validation stops when you're right. not <laughs> on the front page anymore, which, you know, it's pretty relevant at the moment, obviously off the back into the Olympics. But was there so many Olympians have, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, I know Sally Fitzgibbons talked about watching Kathy Freeman and what wanted to go to the Olympics. Was there an Olympian for you that fired you that thought, right, that this is where I want to go? Yes, yeah, Susie O'Neill. Um, ah, the great Susie O'Neill. Yeah, and there were a few reasons. Like I think I was the right age, like I was sort of 12 and she was winning Olympics. O'Neill's in front. She's feeling the pinch a little bit. Paul is drawing closer. About 20 minutes to swim. O'Neill still in front. Susie O'Neill. I got the catcher. Morikova coming again. O'Neill's in front. On top, down, under. Susie O'Neill goes into touch first. O'Neill wins a gold medal for Australia. So... Like I just was at that age where I would have consumed anything <laughs> that was swimming. Um, obviously, mm. I gravitate towards a female, I think, too. And I loved that Susie, 
Um, she, she was obviously successful in her swimming career, but she also was like cool and fun and quirky and doing stuff out of the water that I really was inspired by. Like, you know, seeing her on like commercials or mm. on like cereal boxes and, and she was pretty and fun. And I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, what she's doing, like, I want to do that. And I never wanted to be Susie though. Like I was always like, I, I knew from such a young age, like I wanted to be me and I wanted to do like things in my own cool way. But Susie was the closest, like when I saw her, it was like, that's possible. And she's like the person that I want to sort of emulate in some kind of way. Um, and I think it's really interesting given, you know, what I've done in swimming and, and out of the pool as well. There's a lot of closeness tied together with that. Yeah, absolutely. In, in the, in the swimming pool and in the corporate world as well, I guess there's plenty of links. So at, as a, as a youngster, we're blessed that we have a lot of young people listen to this show um, with their parents and they find various inspiration and motivation from it, which was really, really cool. At, at what age, if you want to be an Olympian as a swimmer in your day with, with your training regime, at what age does it really crank up and become all-encompassing and what is all-encompassing at that stage? I think the shift for me was 13 to 14, like from being a 13-year-old to being a 14-year-old, it really got more like a job. Um, and that was when I had to start making choices. So that's probably where I would draw that line because at 13 I was still, like I played hockey for seven years, like through primary school up to 13, loved it. So it was winter. So um, I was still swimming in winter. There's no off season in swimming, but like nah. less less time in the pool. So I was also playing hockey. I also then got picked for the junior like Queensland cycling team for both track and velodrome. Yeah, for road and velodrome. So I was um, at one point, you know, in winter doing like two cycling sessions a week, like one on the road, one in the velodrome, um, one hockey training session plus the game on Saturday plus like seven swimming sessions. So I literally was exercising every morning and every afternoon, like before and after school. And then on Saturday I would go swimming and then I would go play my hockey game and then I would, like, Jeez. go home. How, and... how are mum and dad going at this stage with oh, the uh, jobby to and from? It's the taxi service. Seriously, mum was just constantly driving me around places. and um, But I loved, I loved having that diversity. But at 14, that was the year that it was like, hey, Steph, we need you to do like instead of seven swimming sessions, you need to really be amping up to nine and um, you can't really risk injury with hockey. I had fractured my ankle like in hockey, so it was like you can't risk this kind of stuff with the swimming, so we mm. might need to give that a miss. And with the cycling, they were like, you need to move from two sessions to six sessions. And like, I was, I don't have to, I don't have enough time to do all of this. So that was when I really chose swimming and chose to prioritize that as my, I always knew it would be swimming, but I had to really start cutting other stuff away to really focus and channel that energy towards just swimming. And that's when I saw the biggest results as well. And, and that was really like, I think that is an important, that was an important age group for me because at 13, 12 and 13, you're sort of finishing primary school and most often it's the parents that would be leading that um, drive, you know, 
the parents have made the choice for you to do swimming and you've probably still done it from school and learned to swim and you're doing some mm. squad stuff. Um, but at 13, 14, you have so many more options now, you know, and things become more important. School becomes more important. Social life becomes more important, other curricular activities. And so it's that age group where a lot of the people that have kind of just been like doing it um, will fall off and focus on something else. And it's the year that you could make the biggest cut through as well, because so many people stop. And so you can really like push through. And that's what, that's what I did. That was a really big, like, um, I, I really improved a lot and made like from sort of coming 12th or 13th in Australia for my age, like I was winning six gold medals the next year. Back to Steph in a moment. Next up on the show, an episode I couldn't recommend more highly. It floored me chatting with this gentleman. It features triple Paralympic champion Curtis McGrath. When serving his country in Afghanistan, Curtis nearly lost his life in an explosion. Can you remember your own conscious thoughts in that period of time? Yeah, I, I just remember, fuck, this is it. Like, this is, I'm, I'm done. And I, was, I said to the boys, like, I don't want to die here. This is not, like, I don't want to die in this shit hole. Because it was, you know, a dusty sand pit of a, a pit. Uh, you know, as beautiful as Afghanistan was, that day was not a great day and I was voicing all the negative thoughts I'd ever had about the situation. So, um, and I think, you know, I was justified in that, in that fact. But I remember pulling pitch in. I was like, mate, like, I'm probably not going to make it, but if you can, can you go onto my laptop and print off these letters I'd written, death letters, you know, letters to my family, to my girlfriend, to my, my brother and sister and friends, so... Um, and that was, you know, I'm okay with it now. Like I can remember it and, and talk about it all good, but that was by far the hardest thing, like emotionally, mentally. I've said my physical difficulty in the past, but it just heart-wrenchingly difficult uh, to do um, and say, but uh, yeah, uh, thankfully. And I, I asked you earlier on about fear. Mm-hmm. So oh, there's no way to ask these questions, you know, you know, Subtle manner, so just to ask them, mate, um, is there? Did you experience fear that you're going to die? Does fear come into it then? Yeah, it was only, only like I said, lying on that stretcher, waiting was going to be the one that I. That was the moment where I had fear. That was the you know, that was the moment where I was scared. Curtis's is a story of serving, what life is like in the modern Australian Army, mateship, tragedy and how to overcome, how to overcome all sorts. All right, let's get back to Steph. When this was going on and you were winning gold medals but you were still at school, I remember Thorpey on the show, I think his alarm, he was telling me it was like 4.03 or something. He knew it exactly. You're like, what time was your alarm going off? Four what? 4.48. And was that a spring out of bed or was that a, oh, no. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Like I think people think like how did you get up early every day? No, no, no. It's not like you're blessed with this, like, oh, my God, I love my life. Like, so excited to go training. No, it was literally, that was maybe once a month that I would be excited to get up for something. So what would what would get you out of bed every other day of the week at 4.48 when you're 14? There was no choice. Like, I think that's the way I've always thought about it. Um Well, okay, so of course there was a choice, but for me it was like my goal was Olympics or or at that age, you know, um, age nationals or whatever. And you, you had, like, I had to go. My goal was 
the thing that drove me through. And if you weren't going to go training, then your competitors are just getting one extra session in the bank that you're not getting. So it was more Mm. a mental thing for me. I never considered another option either. So yeah, 448, it went off and I was like, I'm up. Um, and it was like a hectic song that came on, like some really house club banger, like <laughs> intense, like the, none of this like lullaby, like rel- no, no, no. It was like you've got to get up. Okay, I'm not, I'm not big on that, Stephanie Rice, but I, but I want to ask you. We'll skip forward a bit. So, 2006 Commonwealth Games, 200 medley, 400 medley, gold in both, and in the, uh, I wrote this down in the 400. So this is 2006 in Melbourne. You'll know these times far better than me, but you swam for the 400 medley, 4 minutes, 41.91 seconds. Sound right? That sounds right. Yeah, 441. Okay. We'll get to the 2008 trials in a minute, but your Olympic world record time two years later in Beijing was 4.29.45. So you've taken 12 seconds off (laughs) in two years. I read that. I was like, gee whiz. So I want to know what happens in that two years. What goes into going from a Commonwealth champion in training and mindset to being an Olympic world record holder? You understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, this is such a big question. Yeah, it is. And I'm sure it could be... you know, it could be a three-hour answer, but yeah. two, two, two years, 12, 13 seconds to go from being a gun to being truly elite. I'd love to know what's involved in that. Yeah, I think there was a couple of things. So one was definitely mindset and like a belief in my ability. Leading into Commonwealth Games, I was, thankfully at Commos, they take three Australians for the team, whereas every other team they only take Can the I just top. stop you for one sec? Can yeah. I stop for one sec? How Australian is the term? Commos. Commos, yeah. For the commos. Okay, so we're at the commos. We're at the commo trials. (laughs) Right, the commo Uh, trials. And they take the top three Australians to compete at that team. So they take a bigger team to allow, like, some of those underdog up-and-comers a chance at international racing, which was my cut through because I came third at the trials in both the 200 and the 400. So traditionally the year before I didn't make the team because I wasn't fast enough to get the top two spot. So that was my first international experience. She burst onto the international senior scene in 2006 under new coach Michael Bowl, winning two gold medals in both IMs in front of a home crowd at the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne. So I went in as the third Aussie um, and won both of the races. And that was a really big shift in terms of, oh, my gosh, now I'm the fastest Aussie, but also I'm the fastest in the Commonwealth. And so I had this belief in myself now that I previously didn't have. Um, But that was after the race too. So it was kind of like I took that positivity from the Commonwealth Games back to the training pool and I was like, well, if I can date do that big of a jump, like, you know, like what else can I do? So for sure had like a newfound belief in my ability. Um, And I had always found, and this is very traditional in medley swimming and we see it all the time and probably longer distance races, but specifically fauna medley, it's so hard to race it properly. Like um, because every athlete has different strengths and weaknesses in the four strokes and so learning how to structure that race to suit your athletic kind of skill set is really hard. Um, and what, what was your best stroke? So my best strokes were butterfly backstroke. Okay, yep. So yep. Tr- like on paper, 
I should have been the fastest down the first 200 metres to then kind of just try and hold on to it through the breaststroke, which was my weakest, and freestyle where I was like kind of even with everybody else. But generally racing, I like coming from behind. Like I liked kind of overtaking Mm. people. So I would race pretty hard down the butterfly, try and get my breath back on the backstroke because we're not even halfway. And then... And then I would be ready to go hard in the breaststroke, but I'm not a good breaststroker. So like, I can't really use that to my advantage and then hold on in the freestyle. So for years, I raced it incorrect for my skill set, And it took a long time for me to have the courage to like attack it. And Australians aren't, don't really race like that. Like Australians, attack from behind like you just saw Ariane Titmus at the Olympics like overtaking in the last like 50 meters that's like what and Thorpey would do the same and like so it's kind of like really it was really foreign to be in the front and then feel like oh shit everyone thinks I'm gonna win like you know (laughs) but that's how I needed to Mm. race it and my coach was forever like too easy in the backstroke too easy in the backstroke and so it took me a while I remember doing a race within that sort of transition from 2006 to 2008 at like a Queensland competition, like a something, nothing, where I was like, okay, Steph, just go out like as freaking hard as you can in the first 200. If you die in the ass in the last 200, like whatever, like just get used to like what that would feel like to go really hard down the first two strokes. And so when this, I, this is the first time you've really had a crack at yeah, the new like approach? Yeah, like really had a crack at ah. it. And and I was like, oh, actually, like, that felt good and I, I didn't hurt as much as I thought I was going to hurt and I still was able to, like, hold on in the freestyle. And it really wasn't until the trial, Beijing Olympic trials, where I had, like, a proper... <laughs> A proper go at it where I had a had really big training block. I knew I was training faster than I'd ever trained before. I was doing PBs in training. I was stronger, leaner, fitter, diet was like things were working for me. So I knew I was on course for a good time, but I hadn't raced in maybe like 12 months. So I was like, I don't really know like how good I'll be (laughs) or like what it's going to look like. And so I remember doing that 400 medley on the very first day of the Olympic trials and being nervous as shit. And my (laughs) coach saying to me right before the final of the 400 medley, um, okay, so 400 medley, first day of the meet, like we just want to, you know, we just want to make the team get the ticket to go to Beijing. Work your way into it, Steph. Yeah, like... Like you're you're really well prepared. We don't want to put any targets on our back. Like we don't want to break any world records or do anything like that. And I was like, break a world record. Like <laughs> you're watching the Olympic team swimming trials at the Sydney Olympic Park Aquatic Centre. The- I knew the world record was done by my friend Katie Hoff, and it was like a four thirty one or four thirty two, and my time was four thirty seven, so five seconds or something slower. So, and we had never spoken about breaking a world record or anything. So I was so pissed off at him that he had bought up this, you know, f- like, oh, we don't want to put any targets on our back by breaking world records. Good. But this is the one to beat, Miss Stephanie Rice. Yeah, the young gun. There's not too much he hasn't done. She's the Australian record holder. Wonderful best time. Gold in the two and the 400 metres in the Melbourne Com Games. Bronze in the two and the 400 metres individual medley. The Worlds, the two teams she's made, she's been impressive both times, Steph. She loves big meets, doesn't she? Loves the pressure and this is the one to do it in, the Olympic trials. I was like, why are you telling me this now? I'm so nervous and this is so frustrating. 
And I did this race and I remember just being so confused. Well, Stephanie Rice must be feeling absolutely sensational in front. I thought Jennifer Riley would be up on her. Going into the breaststroke leg, when you're doing your strategizing, getting ready for your race, you sort of have a, a bit of an idea where people are going to be. Well, she'll be totally surprised, Stephanie Rice, when she looks underwater now, looks back all the way down to Jennifer Riley. Where is she? She's gone. I don't know what's happening in lane number three for Jen, but she's just not there. So Stephanie Rice will be feeling absolutely magic out in front. I was so far in front of the next competitor. I was like, am I going really fast or is everyone else going like really <laughs> slow? Like it was so confusing and the crowd was really, really loud. And I'm like, yeah, but it's Olympic trials. Like maybe this is what it's like. And like when I turned around and saw the scoreboard and it was like world record, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Put the name in lights. Stephanie Rice breaks the world record. So what is that feeling when you turn around and you see WR? When I still see my reaction, it was, it's still like complete shock. Like I was as surprised as everybody else because I had never thought about it. I had never worked, thought that I would go that fast or even break it. Like I hadn't ever considered breaking a world record. Most people are close enough to the world record that they're like, let's try and shoot for the world record. Whereas, Well, you chopped five seconds off. Yeah, I did five, like a five-second wow. PV. And the co- the commentary of that race is such gold because the commentators <laughs> don't catch on to the fact that I'm ahead of the world record line until like the last 100 metres of the race. And so you can I can hear the commentators being like, oh, she's doing a good job, like thinking like whatever, just another race. Stephanie Rice, commanding leader into the final discipline. And then it was like, and there's the world record. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> and there's the world record line. Katie Hoff at 4.32 and 8.9. Stephanie's hanging on to it at the moment. And then-, <laughs> then they're, like, all animated and it's so great. Simply <laughs> fantastic. She shattered it. 1.65 seconds or something like that. She's nailed it. Look out, Beijing. Here comes Stephanie. Well, you're going to need to tell me where to find that because I've watched the 200 from the trials. I haven't seen the 400. So oh, before I'll you hang to up today, find it and send it to you. You've, you've got to send it to me. It's a great race. Stephanie Rice, not only off to your first Olympic Games, world record holder. What an amazing swim. How does this feel? It's amazing. I really didn't know I was going that fast. It's just unbelievable to think that I broke a world record. And it's been like my goal since like I was a baby. And I'm so happy. I would have been happy just going to an Olympics. So this is absolutely everything. And I'm so glad my family's here to see this. And I'm just so proud of myself and Michael Ball and everyone that's helped. A couple of questions out of that. Um, you talked about, you know, putting it all out there and changing your approach. In the 200 or the 400, in the medley, where, let's say the 400, where does the pain hit and how does it manifest? The pain hits pretty quick. Like, uh, I think, like, um, well, like the pain is, the pain for me has always been the breathing. Like the breathing goes well before my body starts hurting. So really like that second lap of the butterfly, I'm like, <gasps> I'm like, oh my God, we still have 300 metres to go. <laughs> like, so it hits, it hits that quick. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, wow. the thing that the thing with um, fauna medley swimming in particular is if you go and you'll find this with actually all 400 meter swimming, if you go too hard down the first 50, which is really easy to do because you're excited and there's this, all this energy and nervousness that you kind of naturally want to like really shoot off the block. But um, if you go too hard down that first 50, it really, 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 really hurts you in the last hundred. So it's kind of strategically hard to think in your mind when your body wants to go, but your mind is saying like, just, just like hold it back because you're thinking in your head, like, yeah, but Olympic final, like want to go. Um, so yeah, that, that really, the, the breathing really starts hurting for me, like basically after the first 50 meters, which is why my natural instinct would be to go easy in the backstroke. Mm. So I could try to get some, like my breathing back. Um, but the pain would always really set in like the last 75, like in my body, the last 75 meters where my legs like pushing off that last wall is like. <laughs> Describe the pain, like what's hurting and how's it hurting? So I think the thing that I was feeling like in the last 50 meters, like pushing off that wall for the last 50 of a fauna medley feels like. I don't know what the amount of reps would be for people, but like maybe if you had done like 70 burpees and like that last, oh. you know, when you're trying to get up off the ground off the last one where your legs I are just hate like burpees. feel like they're. They are the, yeah. the worst exercise right. on the Awful. planet. And you're hyper, like you're totally hyperventilating in your breath. Okay. And it feels like your legs are going to just like collapse underneath you, like, and they're jelly and shaking. That's what my legs would feel like pushing off the wall. The 2007 Australian champion defending her title. Now she's got to find something on the freestyle leg. She's only 0.2, 0.2 in front of world time, but she's doing as well as the world record line still. She might be doing better than it. Stephanie's and then the whole last 50, it was kind of like that, yeah, like it, it's like the feeling right before they cramp maybe where they just heavy, tight, like you don't feel coordinated in your body either. Like you feel like you're just trying to hold your body together. And so for me, that's where the mindset is the most important because your body is wanting to go in the opposite direction. And so so that, well, that, that's the obvious question. What do you do with your mind yeah, at that point? So my mind was like in overdrive the last 50 metres It's and just constant positive reaffirmation you're doing a great job only 50 to go like and trying not trying to focus so much on my mind that I would get out of my body so the more I could kind of focus on like like when I was talking to myself like Steph you're doing such a good job like just think only 15 more strokes after like you know Stephanie Rice half a body length in front of world time she's got seven meters to go she's gonna get another world record she takes the IM the 200 You don't think about the pain in your body. So I think that's really where uh, I, I, I knew I was very good at that because I would practice that all the time in training. And it's where most people fall apart in a race. Like they are obviously so in their head thinking, my body's so sore, you know, oh my God, I don't know if I can go anymore. Am I going to be able to hold it together? And so it takes really conscious effort to actually try and think of a positive in a scenario that's like very negative. Um, and yeah, yeah very a, negative. Yeah. So uh, you, we talked about the 400 and you beat Katie Hoff's record, Katie Hoff's record. Then she beat it at the US trials. So what was the gap between the Aussie trials and the Beijing Olympics? About, th- about three months. Okay. So now 
this is what I really want to talk about with you. At that stage, for that three months, you've broken world records. I've worked it in the media long enough to know if you're working on Olympic coverage, you sit down with a production team, whether you're a producer or a reporter or whatever, and there's a big list on the on the whiteboard. These people are real potential to do something fantastic at the Olympics. So it's Ariana Titmus is up there for, for the most recent games. Um, you know, th- there's a long list that uh, Stuart McSwain, the runner, is up there. Right, how are we going to do stories with these people? A- and this is where the, the media machine really starts to amp up and your name becomes everywhere. You're on the TV, you're in the paper. How is Steph Rice dealing with the fact that she was a swimmer and now she's going into the Olympics as a potential, that expression that we use that does my head in, a potential golden girl? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was loving it. Like I, I, like I said about Susie, I loved that she was doing stuff in the media and that she was more, like she was a swimmer, but she was getting this, you know, extra coverage. Like I remember as a kid, uh, you know, I loved like modeling and photo shoots and stuff that I never would have, I never would have been able to do that had I not been a swimmer. So when that media storm was starting and I was getting asked like, can we come to a photo of you before training and can we come to a TV interview? I was like, TV? Oh, my God. Like, this is so exciting. Like, I loved it. Like, I really loved it. And oh, it's a great I answer. It's a great answer, Stephanie. It's very exciting. Um, something we've never done before. Um, so I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great shoot. And do you think he'll make a good model? Oh, uh, definitely. Look at him already. He's blushing. I think my coach was more like the opposite. My coach was like, let's not, um, you know, build up too much hype. In saying all of that, like I loved I loved all of those things. However, when the journalists would ask me, um, you know, do you think you're going to win a gold medal? That I hated because I now hated that there was this like expectation mm-hmm. um, in an environment like, of course I wanted to win, like, duh. But, um, you know, the Olympics in particular is the most, like, uncontrollable environment. So you cannot put an expectational outcome on it because, like, anything, literally anything could happen. And so, so many things were outside of my control that I could and couldn't do. All I knew I could control was my preparation, how I felt on the day and how, how much like guts I bought to my race. That was literally it. And I knew if I touched the wall at the end of my races in Beijing and I literally could heart, hand on heart say I couldn't have done any better in the whole preparation and the race itself, then that was, that was a success for me. And so I always like alluded away from, I never, Mm. I never have ever said in any interview ever, um, yeah, I'm hoping to win (laughs) or I'm hoping to whatever this result that, you know, may or may not happen. And um, it's it's really two different competing forces, isn't it? Because the athlete wants to be low key. They want, every athlete wants to be the underdog pretty much, but the media quite rightfully, they've paid millions of dollars for the rights. So they want to put your name up there as make sure you're watching Steph Rice, make sure you're watching Kate Campbell, make sure you're watching Ariane Titmus because tonight they could win a gold medal. So it's <laughs> But I just think I'd rather let my swimming results do the talking yes. than myself do the talking. And um because 
I mean, we've definitely seen a few people go down the path of like being like, yeah, I'm feeling ready. I'm feeling good. Like I'm the one to beat. And we also don't like that either. So not in Australia, but if we're Americans, that's what we want to hear. American, we're like, we love you. This is amazing. And I love that. I, 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 yeah, that's a cultural, that's a cultural thing. I like inner confidence though. And I think you can really see that in somebody. Um, yeah, like I know I would never, I'd never downplay like, I mean, I would never kind of really go in the opposite direction where you're like, look, I don't know. Mm. I was like, no, like I, I want to do well. <laughs> I, get where, I, I get where you're coming. Yeah. You know, it's the bloke that strikes me is that inner confidence that doesn't overstate it is Kyle Chalmers. Whenever I hear him speak, I think, right, this is a bloke who's confident in his ability, but he's not going to go and he's not going to go and say, right, I'm going to go and take down Caleb Dress or whoever it is. Totally. That's the end of Stephanie Rice Part A. More good stuff coming your way in Part B. Listener.